and welcome to episode 34 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. TableXI is now offering training for developer and product teams. Topics include testing, improving legacy JavaScript, career development, and agile team processes. For more information, email us at workshops at tablexi.com. We also have a free email course and tools on improving your company's career growth and goal strategy, which you can find at stickynote.game. And my book, Rails 5 Test Prescriptions, is now shipping. The book is up to date with the latest Rails, RSpec, and mini-test features, and has some great non-dogmatic content on how to get value from testing your Rails applications. You can buy the book at pragprog.com or wherever fine technical books are sold. Today on the show, I'm talking to Carrie Miller. Carrie's a senior developer and Ruby community member who's also one of the organizers of the Open Source and Feelings Conference. Carrie posted on Twitter a while back about how Smalltalk was the old English of programming languages, and I was intrigued, and that wound up being the starting point for a great kind of free-ranging conversation about programming, languages, and communication. Carrie, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, sure. I'm a software developer and engineer based in Seattle, Washington. Um, I currently work for Travis CI, um, helping people run their tests and continually improve their software. Uh, our last, the last episode I did was with uh, Justin Searles and Sam Fippen, and we wound up having a lot of advice for uh, CI products on how to take advantage of uh, multiple test runs, data cr- across multiple test runs. But that's that's just a plug for previous versions of the for previous episodes. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about programming languages and I guess the, the programming languages over time, because you had written something online about uh, small talk uh, being like old English, and I'm fascinated by small talk and English. So I thought thought that would be a, a good place to start at least. So you want to say what 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 you were talking about and where you came from with that? Sure, and I, I don't remember the exact the exact tweet because I, I I it was in the middle of a, of a, a Twitter rant yeah. there, or a Twitter stream, excuse me. But I, I recently gave a talk at uh, Bath Ruby Conf in uh, Bath, England, um, and I was, as I was working on it, I uh, I decided to like you know do the local like you know localize the talk a little bit, and so I was looking into the history of the English language. Now I'm, I'm kind of a Shakespeare nerd, so I'm, I'm, I've done a lot of like reading in um, Elizabethan English and a little bit in Middle English as well, like you know, reading Chaucer and Canterbury Tales. But like researching the history of the English language, like how has the English language gotten to be as weird as it is? Because the English language as a spoken language is kind of singular. Um, we tend to think of it as a very easy language to learn; it's very flexible. But it stands out in linguistic terms in that English is one of the few languages where there is practically no other language that is derivative enough that a native English speaker can understand it. So, for example, if you speak Spanish, you can figure out most other Romance languages, Italian, Portuguese, French, etc., Romanian, all those. Yeah, they're all basically dialects of Latin. Exactly. They have the same grammar structures. The the vocabulary comes from more or less the same roots. You can probably get about what half of the other person is saying. For an English, a modern English speaker, the only language that you can get about 50% of is Frisian, which is a kind of obscure Northern European coastal language. Right? Like nobody uses it. You probably haven't heard of it before, but you know. I have never heard of it before. Yeah. And so they, that got me really interested in like, well, how did how did English get to be this this weird this weird language? And and the reason is is because Vikings spoke poorly. 
Um, <laughs> so, so Vikings, Vikings in the, in the ninth and 10th century, uh, they come back to England, except this time, instead of just like running around and making a mess of things, they decide to settle down. Right. And so they, they, they marry local English women and they, they raise families and build farms and try to become part of the community. And part of that is adopting English as their language. And what happens in that process is that they were adults trying to learn a language in a society that didn't have literacy, that didn't have schools, that didn't have like, you know, language tutors, right? You, you, what was most important was them getting their meaning across to the people that they were now living with and next door to. And what they did was they knocked off all of the weird edges of English. Old, old English is a standard European language. It has tons of verb conjugations, ver- these fancy verb endings. Um, it has gendered nouns, all these things that modern English doesn't have because the Vikings, when they settled down, they ignored all that. They focused on getting their meaning across to their neighbors. So they spoke bad old English. And over time, their communities grew and became so uh, economically and socially um, really the drivers of English culture at that time that that became the English language. It dropped all of these these other things and became this very flexible, simple language. We lost a lot of our fancy grammar. We lost a lot of, uh, like I said, the verb endings and noun gendering and, and a bunch of other things. Right. There's a generational effect there too, right? Because there's a, a, a standard generational effect when a group of people who don't have a disparate language are, are sort of thrown together. There's a like a very common structure mm-hmm. for the parents come up with the, the people who have you know existing language create it's the term it's one of them is a pigeon and one of them is a creole and i can never remember which is which yeah i can't i can't either i, I am merely a you know yeah. an- <laughs> so the parent so it's a it's it's a really fascinating thing the parents ha- create this this very simple common language with very few tenses and things like that and the children build off of that and create a real language with full tenses and and all kinds of meanings so you're, you're suggesting that basically something like that happened within english it sounds like a very similar process. Yes. So, okay. Yeah. And so in a similar way, like I, I was thinking about um, small talk and how small talk is to Ruby as Elizabethan English is to modern day. You can look at a small talk. If you're a, a competent Ruby developer or a, excuse me, a, uh, an experienced Ruby developer, you can probably read most small talk and figure it out. It's a dialect in a lot of ways. It's heavily influenced uh, in terms of its grammar and its syntax and its its nouns. But as you go further back to like, well, what influenced small talk and what other influences are there? It gets more obscure and stranger and hard to read. So that if you go back to C and Fortran and, and those things that were influencers and coming along at the same time as small talk, those are like old English at best. You know, it's like trying to read Beowulf and it's it's a foreign language. You cannot read it. And then so thinking ahead, like looking at that lesson of how spoken languages evolve over time, we can look forward at our programming languages and see how they change into the future in terms of when you go to a new language, right? You write it in the style of the languages that you already know. Sure. There's a, a long tradition of Ruby developers basically writing Java in Ruby. Exactly. And vice versa, too. Um, as the, the Ruby diaspora happens, right, we bring Ruby-inflected um, programming styles to other languages like Rust or Go or Elixir. Yeah, I actually almost once had a uh, development team very nearly want to murder me because I was doing Python and Java at the same time and brought a bunch of Python data structures to Java. They were not having it at all. They, 
things. Couldn't I get it? So yeah, so this is kind of interesting to me because I'm old enough to have learned Smalltalk before I learned Ruby. So I learned Smalltalk. Smalltalk was my first object-oriented language. And I learned this. I actually built a program in Smalltalk that was used by people who were not me. Like I, I did some graduate level, like student level programming in Smalltalk and then came to Ruby and then came back to Smalltalk. Uh, not professionally, but just to sort of explore it. And it is, does have the feel of like coming back to Smalltalk after working in Ruby for a while. It is interesting to see like what still seems sort of fresh and what seems sort of arcane, uh, most of the environment. The language itself actually still seems pretty workable. I'd be curious because because I don't I don't have that history with it. I went from Ruby to being uh, you know I'm a hobbyist in Smalltalk. I, I dabble with it and write personal some personal programs. It's interesting to me. I feel there are some things that are that are more difficult to do in Smalltalk, and I, I always wonder like did Smalltalk not go far enough, and how much of what influenced Smalltalk was you know what it was. Referring yeah, let to. me back up a half a second for people who are not familiar. Uh, Smalltalk was developed at the the sort of legendary Xerox Park Research Group in the late 70s and early 80s originally. And it was uh, notable in that it was not just a programming language, but also a live environment. So if you're programming in Smalltalk, you're programming in what is effectively a development environment that is also your runtime environment. Uh, so all of the things that you're using to... So, and there's also a very uh, elaborate and arcane set of ways for you to browse the code, you can you can look at the live code that's running the system while the program's running, and it has a, a number of – essentially a self-contained environment that you are both working in and executing. As a language, it's very simple syntactically, I think it's fair to say. Almost all of the complication is in the object-oriented library. Is that – I would I would agree with that. You, uh, with me so far? Yeah, is that, is that agree, so, agree so far? So uh, it, it became influential in Ruby largely because a lot of Smalltalk developers uh, – so Smalltalk, a lot of the original Agile XP development, the, the, the classically the original XP project was a Smalltalk project. And a lot of the, the developers who were associated with that came to Ruby fairly early in Ruby's development and influenced some of Ruby's development ongoing, which is one of the reasons why, why Ruby and Smalltalk feel so similar. So like Smalltalk was very, very viable as a professional enterprise language even for a long time in the 80s and early 90s. For a long time, uh, it was very big in like the air, aviation industry that, that a lot of the airline ticket systems, at least some of the airline ticket systems were built in Smalltalk. And it became less popular, I think, as open source Linux systems became more popular in part and also as thin client systems became more popular. Um, Smalltalk's a very all-in-one system. It does not play very well with Unixy, small pieces, loosely joined kind of system. Smalltalk is a one big piece. That's fair. <laughs> Everything mixed together kind of system. And so it doesn't play like historically didn't play very well with like databases. It didn't play very well with a lot of like strong collaboration, open source uh, at least it didn't for a long time. For those reasons, it, it has tended to get pushed out by other uh, languages, just in terms of the environment and ecosystem, not so much the uh, language itself, a language in the language tool itself. Yeah, no, I think that's that's fascinating to me, especially like if, if I go back to the metaphor of spoken languages and how we we think of English as this like super successful language because it's flexible and easy to learn and like anyone can pick it up and creolize it and pigeon it. But really like English is successful because of economic forces external to the quality of the language. 
you can think of other languages that are exceptionally complex and they they may have some amount of you know quote unquote success in terms of you know how well do they spread and, and maintain themselves and how many native speakers they have. But a lot of that is determined by economic forces or social forces. Then is this a quality language? So small talk could, you know, I think in part of like existing in the what influences do the the economics and the externalities to the language itself? Like what, what was the environment people were trying to develop it in, the economic forces controlling IT departments and vendors and all of that sort of stuff. Right. Smalltalk was very – for a long time – now there are open source small talks. For a long time, there were not. And uh, when, I, I, when I taught a, a undergraduate sophomore level class in Smalltalk in 1997 or 98 or something like that, and uh, you had to buy a license from like IBM's Object Smalltalk, and it was you know, not cheap. And it was you know, obviously targeted enter- enterprise-y kind of stuff. And and so yeah, so that's an economic force that quickly like all kinds of commercial programming environments uh, had trouble about that time, and, and Smalltalk was definitely one of them. Yeah, I mean, if you if if Smalltalk was, I mean, obviously, like we can't go back and like it, it's it's a it's almost a pointless mental exercise. But what if it had been open source at the time, or you know, easily available, and had played nicely with just more distributed systems? So it rather. It, quickly became open source about that time because there was uh, Squeak. I don't know if you're familiar. I don't know what open source, what small talks you're familiar with. Squeak is actually a really cool story because it actually was the original, a lot of the original small talk team from Xerox Park wound up at Disney kind of randomly in like 95, huh. 96 or something. No, it was earlier than that. Uh, it was earlier than that because um, eventually they kind of moved on. So, um, but Alan Kay, I think was, was, impl- I'm going to get this wrong and, and, and I'm going to say, I'm going to get this wrong and we're going to get emails, but honestly, I'm going to get this wrong and nobody's going to know. And oh, don't, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. I'm trying to piece the, I'm trying to, I'm trying to piece the, the, the timing of this. They were working at Disney and they, they took the source code from the original Xerox Park small talk and basically downloaded it and embedded it in a new system that made it legally open uh, like they did something i don't remember exactly how they did it but it's squeak because they were working at disney at the time that they came up with it i did not know that i didn't, I didn't realize i'm that. gonna have to fact check i'm gonna fact check all this and i'm gonna put in a note at the end uh, <laughs> all the corrections that i'm gonna make from this lore I, I i worked with i worked with a couple of i, I have met a couple of the original small talk team over various times uh briefly and and one of them was uh at Apple the summer that I interned there, which was also ridiculously long time ago. And they, and so that team was using squeak. There were, there were people there that were using squeak small talk. It was, a, they, they, they took the small talk source and they wrote a small talk to C translator and they wrote a kernel in small talk, wrote it out to C and then compiled the C to the various operating systems that they were trying to port in because small talk is you know 95 to 98 percent of small talk is written in small talk there's mm-hmm. just a very very small like bootstrapping kernel that's not in small talk so that was what they did they they and they they wrote that kernel in a very like minimal subset of small talk that they felt like they could compile to c they they wrote out c code compiled the c code and then suddenly they could relatively quickly bootstrap Squeak Smalltalk on any platform they wanted. 
which they then did very, fairly quickly. It was available for Windows and, and Mac at the time. It was ported. I remember seeing a presentation where they ported it to a bare Motorola chip that had no other operating system on it. So it was widely available, but it did not interact. Like it was very, very hard to get it to interact with a like relational data, external relational database, for example, which made it very hard to do like web development in it. Okay, so I think the, the, the larger point here is that like languages have utility in their moment, and then they also have influence. Like Smalltalk has been very influential, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's always mentioned, and it, in every you know, every history of, of programming languages you, that you look at, or those uh, those infamous uh, family history charts or the genealogy of programming languages, Smalltalk is just it's always right at the root of so much because it. I mean, in a lot of ways, it it was. And correct me if I'm wrong. It was the first object oriented language, right? Or was the one that certainly that cemented a lot I think of that. It wasn't technically the first object oriented language, but it was the first to get wide. Um, like uh, there's Simula, Simula or something from the sixties. It was technically object oriented, but it was the first to, I think it was the first like late binding runtime language. It was the, like, it was the first language that dynamically dispatched mm-hmm. methods at runtime. I think mm-hmm. if not, it was the first like popular one. <laughs> right. Well, it's a, yeah, it's, and it's been a lot, it's been around since the early seventies. Yeah. The, the, you, the version that, the version that, that became, there were, there was a 72, a 76 and an 80. This is like my most arc among my most arcane piece of knowledge is arcane pieces of small talk history. Uh, and I'm just like, this is the whole reason why I had wanted to talk to you, Carrie. It was just an excuse for me to. No, you're, you're, to, you know, you're, you're on my, uh, my programming bar trivia team. Like, <laughs> yes. You're, you're my first pick. The four people that care about the history of small talk, but they really, those, those people really, really care about the history of small talk. Uh, so anyway, so but the, the, the point is, is that like the people who programmed in small talk and became like expert programmers in small talk came to think about programming in a certain way as something that was very flexible, uh, as something that did not have a compilation step. And they came to think, I think a lot of them came to think about software projects in a similar way. And those, those things are, are really influential. And I think it's kind of interesting to me to think about how programming, the, the programming version of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, how the programming languages you work in affect how you think about programming. Like, so I guess, what would you say? How, what do you think about that? What do you, how do you think that the languages that you've used affect the way that you think about projects and larger systems? Because I've been talking a lot. So. No, I, I, I would agree entirely. And I, I think that's kind of where I was going when I mentioned that, you know, did, did Smalltalk go far enough in that, you know, Smalltalk develops in the context of everything else that's happening around it. And it was a reaction to that. I've often said that, you know, like the, as much as um, Rails is, the, Ruby on Rails, for example, is a ubiquitous Ruby-based framework for developing websites. But it starts as, you know, at least in the legend right, is that DHH, the, the original author, got tired of doing the same boilerplate to build websites, right? So he starts, he builds, he builds a framework to do that. So Rails starts as a reaction to all of the pain points that he was feeling in that moment. So it's a product of its time. And everything that we do is kind of, you know, a, a reaction to the things that, that pain us or our problems that we need to solve, our, our forward thinking is completely shaped by the context that we bring into the situation. Yeah. I think that one of the interesting things about Ruby in that context is that Ruby was created to solve a particular set of problems too. And they were mostly problems having to do with 
system administration, the kind of things that scripting languages were being used for when Matt's uh, created Ruby, you know, 20 years ago. It picked up a lot of features from Perl, which was the system language of choice. Um, I don't remember a reason why Matt's didn't just use Perl, but I'm sure there was a reason. I mean, I, w- I would imagine. As it became used in context outside of, of that sort of scripting language and it became used for web development, it became used for uh, other kinds of software design, like other features, that brought other features to the language. It brought other ways of thinking to the language. And the people who had come of age learning small talk, for instance, found the fact that Ruby was also a late binding object oriented language. A very, they made, it made it a very comfortable place for the way that they thought about software in a way that like Java was not. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think uh, thinking about the, um, how that shapes it, the context of how, how those languages were used being very different, right? Like the, the, especially around systems administration, you're thinking around servers, you're thinking about communication between systems. Java is a compiled language and it was very much, uh, at least in my initial exposure to it in the, the mid to late nineties, it was all about we're building a big, a big exe, a big compiled bin that's you, you run and there's your application, right? And it wasn't about piecing that Unixy thing of piecing these things together. So it wants to like glom in all these libraries and compile it all together. Um, I was going to say, and classically, Smalltalk was used to build systems that have GUIs. So GUI was a very, uh, you know, the user interface was a very integral part of the programming environment and a very integral part of the language library. Um, and it was never really meant for headless kind of things uh, like server-side code or even just like it's a terrible language to write a quick script to manipulate text in. You know, there's just mm-hmm. no, there's no mechanism for doing that easily uh, in small time. My initial exposure to Ruby was uh, coming from Perl and PHP. And the Perl and PHP that I was writing at the time was not object-oriented. Um, I had exposure to object-orientedness through Java, but I, you know, I wasn't writing my Perl that way. I wasn't writing PHP that way. And so my early Ruby very much was not taking advantage of objects. I, but I, I, I grokked what objects were, and I, I, I could use them, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I was writing. So was that a question of, of the translating, I mean, if you had done object-oriented stuff in Java, when you came to use objects in Ruby, did you build on that knowledge from Java or did you come to think of objects in a completely different way? I came to them through Java. So I'm very comfortable with, with you know, we can make the jokes about, you know, factories and all that. And I'm, I'm actually pretty comfortable with that because that's, that's my early exposure to objects, um, that objects aren't necessarily, we always, we always teach object-oriented thinking to, stu- to students, especially as, you know, think of a car and a car has a door and, you know, we're really teaching a, like a, a platonic model where objects uh, relate to a physical thing or a concept, whereas Java taught me to think about objects uh, in terms of also as verbs that you can have, you can, you can create a, an object out of a process as a, I, I mentioned this talk in a, in a lot of the talks I give this idea that like all software carries around like its entire lineage. Right. And it's not until something about this feature or bug fix or something is a problem that we actually remove it. Right. And so, so software has all these weird little evolutionary ad- adaptations that it carts around. Yeah. And so my understanding of that, of this idea that like, Oh, well you can, you can encapsulate a business process as an object 
you, you, you can do verbs, not just nouns. That never hurt me. But when I came into doing um, more microservices and service-oriented architecture, and especially event-driven architectures, that idea of being able to extract business processes as objects that I could also pass around and treat as nouns, but they're really verbs, really helped me in that environment. So suddenly I had this weird thing that I was carrying around, you know, like the ability to roll your tongue, right? And like all of a sudden, like, <laughs> oh, wow, I'm in this situation where that's actually useful. And like, so it let me, you know, let me accomplish more than uh, perhaps some of my peers. Yeah, I do think there's a big moment when you learn object-oriented that, that you start with the idea that objects are like a, a reflection of items in the world and you come to learn that objects can be used to represent abstract concepts as well and like processes and like workflows and like transactions and things like that. And that turns out to be extremely useful and also extremely hard to teach in non-contrived examples. So it's the sort of thing that you either, either we're really bad at teaching it, which is entirely possible, or like, it's just something that you have to come to by seeing it done or, looking at other people's code or, or experimenting on your own with different techniques. I think it's, um, it gets down to the pedagogy of, of teaching in some ways, right? Like we have to say things, we, when we're teaching a new concept to somebody, you have to start with what they know and relate it because we humans communicate and understand things narratively and through metaphor. So we, we teach object-oriented, as I mentioned before, like this idea of like, okay, here's a car and, you know, all cars are vaguely the same, except, you know, they're individual instances of this platonic ideal of a car. And you can kind of go from there. But if you hear that, that lesson over and over again, but from different perspectives with slight variations on that theme, eventually, like you expand um, the window of the possibilities of what that, what that means. Are you familiar with the, uh, there's, there's something in um, political theory, the Overton window? Yes, but you should explain it. Uh, the Overton window being the idea that um, we have certain things in our political life that are verboten. We cannot speak about them. We cannot even suggest that this is a possibility. But then somebody does. And all of a sudden, now it's okay to talk about that thing because somebody has expanded the window of possibilities for us of, of what is what is politically feasible. In our knowledge base, we have a very similar thing where the structure of what we've learned before, or the context of it, constrains our thinking. But as we expose ourselves to new and surprising ways of thinking about software, thinking about our languages, it can expand that window of what we find to be possible. You have the, the, the aha moment. Exactly. One of the things that's specifically a challenge in, in object-oriented, and I also see this when I try to teach testing, is that in small examples object-oriented programming looks like ridiculously convoluted and you don't really see the benefit of it unless the example has been extremely well chosen. You don't really see the, the value of it until uh, the code is like too large to be used as a teaching example. To me, that's one of the biggest challenges when I try to, when I've tried in the past to teach object-oriented thinking, design, programming to people is that like, there's just sort of this Especially if you come from uh, the concept of like this, the best programming, the best program is the simplest and the smallest. There's a, like a, a, a recoil from seeing a really elaborate OO system on a small problem. Yeah, you can have hundreds of hundreds of these little tiny objects and files floating around, and who knows what they do. But yeah, until you assemble it together, then you can't see until it. you have to change it, and then you see the value of it. Hopefully, yes, 
That's one reason why, for me, Ruby was such a such a wonderful discovery. It's wonderfully verbose in a way, and it, it prioritizes that human to human communication of code, where what we're doing is we're documenting a process in a way that a, a computer can take instruction from. So compositional styles of formatting your code become very useful. Good Ruby code, you can read it aloud, and it tells you more or less in understandable English what is happening. And you can like begin to like think about the metaphors, and you can personify or anthropomorphize the objects, and think about like, well, this object is talking to this object, who goes off and does this little thing and comes back. You can tell the story of what's happening, engage with it on that on that level. But you have to you have to get there though. Yeah, yeah. Python has always been talked about as executable pseudocode, which is a very similar. Kind of I've heard that before. Yeah. All right. What's the most recent programming language that you picked up for the first time, and what did you learn from it? In a serious way, uh, it was probably Go. I had uh, worked in a little bit of C, doing some string processing, and it was the first time I had ever written C, which is so strange to come to come to CE after 20 years of being a very successful <laughs> engineer to finally work with C, and I was very excited. And honestly, it was uh, six six weeks of being frustrated that it didn't do what I wanted it to do. C is terrible. Like it, uh, like, and I have not. I, I, I have not programmed production. I have not programmed C professionally. Actually, I've never programmed C professionally. I only programmed C as a student. I think I edited C professionally, but I've never generated C professionally. I mean, it's very, very good for the very set of things for a small set of things. I guess that it, it does. Anyway, all right. You were talking about Go. So oh no, so anyway, I don't know yeah, anything about Go. I've never actually used it. So. <laughs> Well, the reason I mention it, right, is, is that I, I went to Go and I started a Go project uh, for where I was working at the time. And I realized that six or seven weeks of C had fully prepared me, uh, despite the, that frustration, had really prepared me to read and work with Go. But all of a sudden, the things that I disliked about C were gone. They had been kind of abstracted away. So, so Go, in some ways, to me, feels like, what if we rewrote C but as a Ruby language, right? It, like it, it has some 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 Python isms and some Ruby isms embedded in it. In that way that the you know these other languages again, like it's that sm- it's the small talk lineage is coming back now into these other languages. I think that one of the things that's really interesting to me about languages over the last few years is the extent to which there are a number of languages in the last four or five years that have come out that are basically trying to be C but better. Mm-hmm. I would classify that as Go. I would classify that as Rust. I would classify as Swift. Yep. And I think that's really interesting that, that for a long time, nobody really tried to do that, that the new programming languages were all scripting languages and were meant to be not trying to compete with C on speed or or like that kind of programming. But now, relatively recently, it seems like mm-hmm. those kinds of things are building. I also think that, that Objective-C is probably the biggest small talk borrow language of all time. But that's beside the point, I suppose. So what did you learn from Go? Well, C got me to think down at a different level, right? It's like moving bits around and having to think about memory addressing and, you know, claiming and releasing memory and all that, all that kind of like uh, the custodial work of the language uh, that you have to do. I found it painful. Go has a lot of that same power, but it's, is more flexible and expressive. What it was I wanted to do became closer to the front of my mind in the work that I was actually doing. Whereas in C, like I would often forget what the heck am I even trying to do because I'm like four files deep and I'm thinking about like, wait, is this a reference or a pointer or like what's going on here? Go put the the thing that I was trying to do closer to 
the work that I was actually doing in that way. Cause it removed a lot of that, that the little rabbit holes you'd have to go down and see. So when I doing that and then come back to Ruby and how much like, Oh, now I understand much more of what is really happening with a Lambda or when you're passing something by reference or all these sort of uh, CS foundational uh, conceptual bits that you can kind of gloss over um, quite frankly, because it's just, that's just the way Ruby does it. Blah, blah blah, but being able to see more intrinsically some of the more esoteric bits of Ruby that a lot of people avoid, procs and lambdas, working with threads and thinking about what's actually happening in the memory stack, that became much more clear to me when I had to move down these levels. And then Go became the place where those two ideas are synthesized together, where all of the the, the painful parts of C working at that particular level of abstraction combined with the more friendly, user-friendly stuff that I was bringing in from Ruby and other scripting languages melds it together um, to give me a much richer sense of what is happening here under the hood. Did it change the way you wrote Ruby? Oh, completely. Absolutely. It demystified a lot of that lower-level stuff. Um, so thinking around what is the what's the importance of thinking about cycles of processing what is what is faster what is cheaper for memory what is more efficient um and balancing that more appropriately against clarity yeah i have i have not picked up go the most recent language i picked up i tried to pick up in any kind of serious way was elm mm-hmm. which was very interesting and i i feel like it crystallized a lot of uh things about functional languages that I had kind of dismissed, partially because the functional languages I had worked in did not really necessarily make those advantages uh, super clear. But uh, it was interesting to me to come to a... So Elm is a functional, uh, very strictly typed language uh, that is a front-end language that compiles to JavaScript. One of the things I got out of it was that it was the first sort of uh, functional programming language that I'd used, pure functional programming language that I'd used in quite a while that I had actually been able to get something done in which was very exciting. And I feel like I, I learned a, a lot about how strong typing and, and functional programming like go together to change the way that you structure a program. Because you think because if you're coming from an object-oriented program and you're coming to a functional program, the relationship between the data and the code is completely different. And if you don't understand that, and I don't know that I completely do, uh, then the functional program is going to be terrible. And the first couple home things that I did were, were terrible because I was trying to emulate the Ruby constructs that I was comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I had an almost, uh, almost the exact same experience trying to learn closure um, a number of years ago where it was, everyone's excited about it. People were doing interesting things with it. It didn't click for me. It doesn't resonate with me the same way because why doesn't it do what I want it to do? Why can't I express the things? I don't have the right grammar. I don't have the right syntax. You know, I have a very strange relationship with closure and I can't completely explain this because I wrote another thing that I did when I was a student was I, I spent some time writing Lisp. I wrote some relatively good sized stuff in common Lisp. And at, at, at that time, there was an exceptionally good common Lisp environment that produced native Mac programs. So you could actually write native Mac GUIs in Lisp. And I wrote a terribly structured program that was half objects and half not in Lisp. So I had some comfort with Lisp. And for some reason, Clojure, which is like 90% overlap with common Lisp, I I just could not, it kept bouncing off my skull. Like the differences, the things that made it different, it just made it look weird to me. And I, my brain in some ways like refused to learn (laughs) 
things that are different between closure and, and standard lists. And I can't explain why at all, except that there was something about setting up the environment or having the parentheses and square brackets interspace that my brain just recoiled from. And I, I just can't explain it. That's, that's like me and Haskell. <laughs> Somebody, uh, there's a, a developer in the Pacific Northwest area who's, who's very into Haskell and I'm, I'm friends with, and he's tried to explain Haskell to me two or three times and I get it. I get it explains it to me and then we just get to this one point and i'm just like you lost me like i just there's something about this one conceptual leap this one the implications of how haskell does something require so much more like context or understanding or you're not going to get this point until another two chapters forward um it's similar to the 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 book the cimmerillion by tolkien i i've tried to read it three or four times i'm a huge middle earth nerd I try to read this book and it's around page 54. And I know it's page 54 because my bookmark is always in the same spot. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm with you. And then like, there's one section where it's just like, nope, I'm done. I can't read this anymore. I, okay. So, all right. Many, many things. I have, I have never, I haven't seriously tried to learn Haskell, but Elm has been described as like a less academic Haskell and it might be a way in. It has a lot of similar, the Elm compiler is actually written in Haskell, but Elm is somewhat simpler. I think, but I also uh, probably I would I tried the Silmarillion. It's been a long time since I tried it, but I would be willing to bet that I noped out at about the same. <laughs> <laughs> People who, who are really really into it always say like, "Oh, well, you're reading that first that first part. Yeah, that's horrible." And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> just that's, yeah. can, is it important? Do I just know this <laughs> stuff? Who it's and it's this whole list of like the Elvish gods and who begat who. It's you know." It's the genesis of, of the Tolkien. So what we've come to is Haskell is the similarian of programming languages. And for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And Ruby is the Hobbit of programming languages. <laughs> oh, uh, somewhere in there. I, I did actually think of, of what I got when I came back to Ruby from go. Okay. A really good example was I understood types. <laughs> like I know what types are, right? I know what type safe languages are. I know why they're, why they're there and they're good, but I had written enough Go that I came to rely on types, and I suddenly got very leery about Ruby, and it doesn't have types. You know, I actually, I, I, again, I like my Elm experience was similar in the sense that Elm is very strongly typed, uh, and so the compiler does not let you do all kinds of things that you otherwise want to do, including the compiler does not let you, if you have a case statement, uh, the compiler requires that all possible outcomes are covered. Interesting. And it did make coming back to, and I've programmed in Ruby for a long time and I very rarely have the kinds of problems in Ruby that type safety will protect you against. Although interestingly enough, I did have one today <laughs> where, where uh, multiplication was happening on a string instead of an integer. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but I came back to, yeah, I came back to Ruby and it felt unsafe again for a little bit. I don't know that the way that I programmed Ruby necessarily changed a lot, but I did have this like resi- like I had kind of lost the reflex of understanding how to keep things safe in Ruby. Mm-hmm. I think it emphasized um, Liskov substitution for me more than uh, which which I will explain. Uh, Liskov substitution principle is one of it's the L in solid, and it's the idea that. Um, um, a subclass of an object should be replaceable for its parent, but it's that idea that right, like if, if you don't know, you don't you don't have to know the type of an object. You just kind of have to know what it can do. 
in a way. And people have talked to, have, have spoken to this idea in Ruby around not, not inquiring what is the class of an object, but what methods does the object respond to? What is, what is this object capable of doing? That pushed me down the path of looking at null object patterns, the idea of if you try to fetch a user object from the database and you don't find that user, instead of returning just a nil primitive object, why don't you return a null user object that responds to all of the methods that a regular user object would? It just, you know, if you ask, inquire about its name, it says, I don't have a name, nil, but you don't. Uh, I'll put in the show notes a really good Sandy Metz talk on that, on null objects. Totally. I, uh, Avdi Grimm first exposed me to null object pattern, but this, Sandy's a great resource for that as well. Yes. Yeah, sorry. So you're going at null objects. I started taking advantage of this pattern in Ruby. I wouldn't say it's obscure pattern, but it's not one you see very often in Ruby. Yeah. It, it, you, usually, you have to explain it to somebody if you're using it in Ruby. It's not idiomatic the way that like um, um, using a module as a mix-in would be idiomatic in Ruby. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I, I got that from Go. I got that because, oh, I actually like types. Like I understand like there, as a programmer, I can trust that there's this thing. And so for there was a couple weeks where Ruby felt unsafe and I started littering more guard statements into my methods where I'm like, okay, well, make sure I've got all this stuff where really what I needed to do was um, to think more upstream about where things were coming in and like, well, objects, how was I working with these objects? Right. So that, that is, that has really restructured what I, what I do. Yeah. Programmers who are new to Ruby have a tendency to write more guard statements, I think, than they will come to. Um, I also mm-hmm. think programmers who are new to Ruby tend to go a little bit crazy with leaving off parentheses for a while. Uh, but that's, <laughs> that, that's separate. Some people never recover from that. But whenever I encounter something new like that, like a new way of, of thinking about code, like let's leave off all the parentheses. I actually will try to embrace it for two to three weeks. And all of my, for, I actually did that with, with the parentheses list style for a while where I just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use them. And so I very quickly over the course of two or three weeks really learned what benefits there were and also what, where the pain points were. So I was able to make, you know, actually inf- have an inform- informed decision about whether that was good or not. Yeah. One of the things that I talk about when I teach object-oriented and I teach a very aggressive OO style is that you don't learn the boundaries of a technique until you overuse it. And you, you can't tell where something's applicable until you try it in a bunch of situations and see that it's not. And that goes for like parentheses and it goes for semicolons, I suppose. And it also goes for OO. Like eventually if you start thinking of everything and creating small objects, you will go, Oh, I have finally found the point where there are too many objects. (laughs) My my latest adventure on that has been um, Ruby's singleton library. I'm making, I, for a while I was making everything singleton. So I'm like, Oh, I have to write a wrapper for an API. Well, that sounds like a singleton. Let's, let's do that. And it, Quickly learned a lot of pain points with. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason why everybody doesn't do that all the time. There are two Ruby techniques that I oscillate between. I never use it, and then I use it all the time until I find the pain point, and I never seem to get to the equilibrium. And one of them is using doubles mocks in testing, and the other one is simple delegator uh, in Ruby. And in both of them, I will go through phases where I like overuse them and find the pain point, and then I will back off way too far and come back and I never seem to like find the, the, the medium point where I'm using either of those techniques, the right amount. Let, let me ask you this. Um, do you feel that the pain points come from the implementation in Ruby particularly or from 
of simple delegator? Yes. Or, or is it the, the, the pattern slash concept of simple de- delegator? That's a very good question. I would say more the pattern that I get in a habit. So, so the, the general use case of using a delegator here, at least the way I use it, is one of several techniques that I use to split complexity it's all sort of related. So I'll have a user and I'll have a bunch of functionality for the user that's only used in one place. So I'll write a like billing user or something and it'll be simple delegator to user. And simple delegator is great there because it's as opposed to, uh, it's great. It's very easy. Uh, you don't have to explicitly expose any part of the underlying object. And then I realized that sometimes there's a reason why you might want to have to explicitly expose or not expose parts of the underlying object. But do things until they become annoying is a really good learning tool. I do that up and down. I'll do that with techniques. I'll do that with like I'll try Visual Studio Code for a couple of weeks until it becomes annoying. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, I had a coworker who, coworker who loved um, the RubyMine IDE. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't know if that's even still exists, but yeah. he lo- he loves it. And so I was like, okay, Chris, I will try it. And so I, I gave it a, yeah, I gave it a try for two or three weeks. And I was like, okay, I can see like the benefits here. Um, it didn't suit me particularly, but you know, it, it was just like a practice in, in like humbleness, I guess, and empathy where I'm like, uh, Hey, like you, you have a preference for this thing or you're excited about this, you know, whether it's a language or an IDE or a pattern or whatever, right? I have enough respect for other people that to say like you have valid experiences and opinions and I'm curious. I want to learn more about like how have you formed that and like what has gone into to your understanding there. Yeah, I, I that I often I, I will often try to pick up techniques that I hear other people doing that I hear other people being excited about for a while. On a long-term code base that tends to lead to a certain amount of like well, I must have written this 2 years ago because that was when I liked form objects. But overall, it's it's generally it's a good strategy to try things like it's you know yeah definitely yeah I, d- I dabbled with like the DCI pattern which is you know inject injecting contextual methods into objects cellular based views I mean like all, all sorts of these these ideas that people have like we have to try them right because otherwise how do you know yeah yeah because sometimes they stick some things stick yeah James Edward Gray uh, a few years ago in in one of his talks said something along the lines of like how he just happened to hit the language jackpot by, by picking up Ruby at like the perfect time. Yeah. And like, who knows why that you can't, you can't look ahead and decide like as a student, what do I need to learn today? That's going to be really popular in five years or, or whatever you can make some guesses, but you, you really, you never know. And similarly, like with, with the things that are inside of languages, you, you, you just don't know. You have to try them out and, and see how they work. Carrie, where can people reach you online if they want to talk about this more? Uh, well, I'm Carrie Zor pretty much everywhere online, uh, especially Twitter. And you can also, I have a, a blog that I don't write as much as I used to, uh, at com. Great. Um, well, thanks for being part of this conversation. And uh, we'll see everybody else uh, in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.